Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. How do fish manage to navigate and survive in the deeps of the ocean and also in the rivers and streams? A fish might seem like it's just idly swimming through the water, but it's doing a lot of visual processing to know where it is and to keep itself balanced. We also find out how fish manage to get to the deepest parts of our oceans and how they manage to thrive and survive as the earth changed around them. Now walking in a straight line is a pretty important thing for people to be able to do. Well, sometimes we even test people on their ability to do so. Other times, walking on a meandering path is a great way to explore and find out more about where you are. If you're driving in a car, looking straight ahead is obviously way easier for your brain to process and deal with as opposed to looking at all the fast moving objects whizzing by you out the window if you say, look sideways. And conversely, if you're stationary in a car or on a train and maybe some cars around you start moving in the other direction, well, sometimes that can trick you, trick your brain that is, into thinking that you're moving when in fact it's everything around you that is. And this is one of those things we, where we get a lot of visual cues from what is happening around us purely by what we can see. Now, when in the case of example, you're sitting on a stationary train and the train next to you moving, that other train is so large and the visual cue from that moving overrides your brain. It creates such a strong sense that you are in motion that it overrides everything else that you know about your current position and, and what's happening to you. And this exact phenomena is what researchers like Northwestern University's Emma Alexander, a lead author on a paper published in the journal Current Biology, have been diving into. Not in the world of trains, but rather diving deep into the rivers, looking at what's happening to fish. Because Emma and others have been studying what happens to fish as they swim through the river stream. Because... How do they process and figure out where they are and where they're going, more importantly, without any real good contextual clues? And what they found is that, well, a lot of the time, if you actually sit there and carefully look at a fish, you'll see that they're not looking straight ahead. They're looking down. Now, for this research, they were turning their attention to zebrafish, and zebrafish are a well-studied model animal, and that's great because then they can understand which regions of the brain are responsible for what. They understand, you know, where the spatial processing information is, and they can even have spatially varying swimming behavior and into a computational model of actually the zebrafish's brain. And when they did this, they saw that, well, it wasn't actually a product, the direction of looking, that is, of their makeup of their brains, but rather an adaptive behavior, a behavior that these zebrafish have developed in order to self-stabilize and keep going straight ahead, even when swimming against a current. You see, as a fish is swimming in a river, they need to balance themselves just even to stay in place. If they don't, they could get swept away by the moving stream. So maintaining your balance is important. But if you've focused on other fish, plants, or debris, that might give you the wrong information. You might think you're moving when in fact actually you're stationary. And as we talked about before, this phenomenon of alternate visual cues can be really quite confusing for your brain, and it's no different for the zebrafish. By contrast, the riverbed underneath the fish, well, that is pretty stationary, and actually it's way more stable. 
just like you would look at the horizon to help spot you when you do a spin or as you're driving, the fish are using the constant for them, which is in this case actually the riverbed, to give them a pretty stable and reliable source about their swimming direction and speed. Now, we talked about the researchers using zebrafish, and that's what Associate Professor Emma Alexander was really basing her study around. Problem is that they're such a well-defined model organism. If you want to really understand the behavior of zebrafish in a lab environment, that's great. But they were trying to look at how a zebrafish behaves trying to stabilize itself in a river. And most labs don't contain a fully functioning river. So, of course, you have to go away from the lab tanks and back to the native habitats, what actually shaped the evolution of their brain and their behavior in the first place. So, the team took all kinds of camera equipment to seven sites across India to gather lots of video data of shallow rivers, which is where you can normally find a zebrafish. They used a 360-degree camera inside a waterproof diving case and attached it to a robotic arm. They could then plunge that into the water and move it around. This basically gave them an insight into what the fish are seeing as they're swimming in a river, as close as you could practically get to seeing what the fish can see. And from that video data, they can actually get really interesting scenario-based tests of a simulated fish and could see how that could then be fed into their computer models. Basically, they had a good data set source that matched real-world scenarios, and so they could see how a simulation fish would actually respond to this test case of a river. So back in the lab, they could attach trackers to zebrafish's motions with little bore LEDs. And this is important because they could then track where the fish are looking at. And fish are pretty special because they actually have a relatively large field of view in their eyes. So whereas you and I will scan our eyes around and dart them around our peripheral vision to build up the perception model in our heads of the world, fish don't tend to need to do that as much because their field of view is quite large. So in order to get the fish to look around, the researchers played all kinds of motion stimuli across the room in the lights and then with that they could watch the fish's responses you know when there were patterns on the bottom of the tank the fish could swim along with the moving patterns which is important because then it showed that the fish were taking some of their visual cues from that direct looking downwards if you stimulated and affected the fish's behavior by placing some patterns or some moving objects onto the riverbed simulated in this case the fish would think that they're moving. If you play a video, and that's what Associate Professor Emma Alexander and her team did, they took videos with moving stripes and projected them along to the surface of the tank so the fish would think they're moving along with the stripes. It's, as she says, it's like they're saying, wait for me. In the behavioral experiment, we counted their tail beats. The more they wagged their tails, the more they wanted to keep up with the moving stripes. So from this type of analysis, you could get better and better tests and data and actually check what is happening inside the fish's brain and obviously the model of the fish's brain that we have. They fed the data sets with two different types of algorithms for studying optical flow, a movement like we would use across our eyes or a camera lens. And what they saw, both in the wild and in the lab, the zebra fish swim forward but look downward. And this is what gave them their best way to counteract being swept away. And in the computer simulation, you could see 
exactly that thing taking place as well. Now, in the water itself, you can look and you can see there's not a lot of visual information inside the water. Maybe you get other fish or plants or objects or debris, but there's not a lot of texture, so you can't track movement. By contrast, you get a lot of success of tracking the movement on the river bed. There's features, rocks, pebbles, texture. That'll give us the clues that you need to process. Now, this is really cool for fish, but it's also really important for artificial vision processing because this is the same type of thing that a robot may have to use if it wanted to swim or navigate inside the water because they have just the same problem, trying to stabilize themselves inside a visually dynamic and changing data stream. And in this case, the stream's bed is actually the best place to pull that information from. There's some great research published in the journal Current Biology with lead author, Associate Professor Emma Alexander and a team of collaborators from Northwestern University. surface of the earth there is a significant portion of it that is of course ocean humans have only managed to explore or understand and study small amounts of not only the planet's surface but even less of our oceans maybe in some cases we understand more about the moon surface than say what's really going on in the depths of our ocean and the deep sea the deepest parts of our ocean contains more than 90% of all the water in our oceans. But if you were to look at the life that's present in it, it's only around a third of all fish species. Now, now maybe you might intuit that, well, of course there's gonna be less life in that deep oceans because, well, there's not enough light or there's not enough nutrients. By contrast to the deep ocean, shallow ocean waters are full of all kinds of things. They're warm, they're full of light, they're full of food and nutrients, so they're really the ideal place to evolve and thrive. And that's true, but there's a lot of other things going on in the deep of the ocean that researchers from University of Washington, including Elizabeth Miller, have been diving into. Because in the depths of our ocean, we can probably get a better understanding of how and why life forms in certain ways. And this was, paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Now, the deep sea is normally defined as anything below around 200 metres. At this point, sunlight just doesn't really penetrate that far. Without enough sunlight and sufficient concentration, you can't have photosynthesis. Without photosynthesis, there isn't all those microorganisms that rely on that for food. And of course, larger and larger creatures that rely on those microorganisms for food, so that whole food web. Now, that is one of the reasons why you might intuit that there's not much species evolution or rapid change in that depth or below. But Miller and her team looked at the evolutionary patterns of fossils over around 200 million year period of time. And we're trying to study what happened to deep sea fish and to upper sea fish. Now, if you looked at this, you could see that there were some periods lasting tens of millions of years where actually species were evolving, new species that is, faster 
in the deep sea as opposed to the shallow seas. And this raises a lot of questions. Why would fish prefer one of the habitats over another? And more importantly, why would that keep changing over time? Why would you end up with these periods where the deep was actually the place to be? And what other factors were driving this sudden evolutionary burst in this area of the ocean? Now with this data, now that there was some flip-flopping backwards and forwards of these fish preferring shallow or deep waters, she then looked at the Earth's history, trying to find what other things could be going on at this period of times. Now, there are probably three major events that caused fish to prefer deep waters or shallow waters, to at least their preference, to change. Now, one of the first major events, of course, was the breakup of Pangaea, one of the great supercontinents. This is around 200 and 150 million years ago. When this happened, all kinds of new coastlines and oceans were created. All this rapid change of the coastlines and the formation of new oceans actually created the ability for fish to start getting into the deep ocean that they would never have had before. There was all of a sudden more places that are deep and more ways to get there. So, of course, that's one point. There's a case where, obviously, where new oceans and coastlines are created, that's pretty obvious why there would be a change in preference at that time. But there's other events that are more climate-related. If you look at the Cretaceous hot greenhouse period, it's around 100 million years ago. It was one of the warmest times in Earth's history. At this point, many continents were flooded due to sea level rise, creating a large number of shallow areas across the Earth. Lots of shallow pools, lagoons, and oceans. In this period, you see, of course, shallow water fish just thriving because there's all kinds of new areas of shallow oceans around. Not so much the climate factor, but more actually the fact that there was just way more shallow water. So, of course, in the fossil record, you'll see way more shallow fish. Now, the third major event that Miller and her team found was around 15 million years ago. It's the Middle Miocene climatic transition. This was a further shift of the continents caused major changes in the way the ocean currents circulated. When these ocean currents changed, this cooled the planet, and that cooling was impacting all the way down to the deepest parts of the sea. At this time, you see the deep sea speciation rates are really, really speed up. This was really driven mostly by, actually by cold water fish, the type you would find in Alaska or the Arctic. They thrived in actually now the super cold oceans, especially in the deep. And this is a really important thing because you can see how major climatic trends, changes in ocean currents or ocean patterns, sea level rises or shallower water pools can lead to dramatic changes in the type of species of fish that evolve to fill those new niches. Now, that's all great for the continual evolutional history and changing of different types of fish out there. But how did the fish even figure out that they could live in the deep sea in the first place? As we talked about it, it's not an ideal place to live. I mean, yeah, if you've evolved to match that niche, that's great. But what drove those first fish to go there? How did they colonize the deep sea in the first place? You need lots of traits to survive in deep water and make use of the limited resources that are there not just the amount of sunlight, but also other nutrients found. So to get a species that can get into the deep sea, first you have to get there. So you need to find a way to actually get to this deep sea, which is obviously not immediately obvious. There are certain parts of the world which, just geologically speaking, don't have access to really, really deep water. So, okay, fine. Once a fish has got the ability to get to deep water, that's one part. But 
they need to have large jaws because if you've got larger jaws, you have more opportunities to catch food and food can be scarcer at those depths. And fish that had longer tapered tails tend to be successful at making the transition to deeper water because it allowed them to conserve energy by scooting along the sea floor instead of swimming in the water column. And if you look at what you find in the deep sea today, you'll see species with tapered narrow bodies and then have really big, scary, toothy jaws. These two types of body plans represent what would have been the first fish to get there in the first place, probably millions of years apart. Now, this is a pretty amazing thing to look back in time to understand, but because we're talking about geological and climate changes impacting the evolution of fish in our oceans, these are things that, of course, we have to deal with in the present as well. So understanding how the deep sea fish got there in the first place, evolved and changed, really important for helping understand how fish will evolve and change now as our climate changes due to human-made changes in our climate. Now, this is a great paper published in the Journal of the Brazilian National Academy of Sciences by lead author Elizabeth Miller from University of... This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From staring at the seafloor to help keep fish balanced in the rivers and how fish manage to colonise the deepest parts of the... Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.